discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Well, as many of you know, we broadcast this show from the city of Houston, Texas. And as many of you know, Houston, Texas was just devastated raped and abused by Hurricane Harvey. So, being a resident here, I can say it was a harrowing five days for many of us, and for many of us who experienced unprecedented loss, our lives will never be the same. And yet, the people of this city are pulling together, helping, helping each other, displaying compassion, reaching out, reaching out to help each other overcome adversity. It's touching, it's moving, it's inspiring. So Nietzsche once said, that which does not destroy us makes us stronger. And right now, Houston is a great example of that. The people of the city are a living example of that. And... um despite the, the, the fear and the stress and the pain that comes from dealing with something like that. Um, after it's all said and done, I'm very proud and very glad um, about where I live. Houston proud, as they say. So that's about as close to nationalism, I think, as you're going to see me get. It's more like, uh, I guess, cityism <laughs> or immediate uh, surrounding area-ism clan tribalism something like that i don't know but here's a funny thing some people just can't stand seeing this they just can't stand seeing some people i guess turning a tragedy into a success story into a story of triumph so almost right away i started seeing jabs on social media about houston about oh you know serves them right you know little comments like that and I'm like, what? Where is this coming from? So that's like obnoxious. And then um, eventually uh, I was directed to seeing a article from Time magazine, time.com more specifically. On, and uh, this is August 29th um, where they said the University of Tampa has fired a visiting assistant professor who suggested in a tweet that Harvey's destruction is instant karma for Texas because it voted Republican. I'm like, really? So, I mean, first of all, you're going to have a lot of people and have had a lot of uh, people from Houston responding to this and saying, hey, Houston's not even, you know, Houston was blue. Houston uh, supported Hillary. And so, I mean, my response to this is, you know, you shouldn't have to say who you voted for. You shouldn't have to explain anything in the face of this. It's like trying to use, you know, uh, if someone accused you of being a witch if you used some other method of uh, superstitiousness to try and convince them that you're not a witch. 
But before I get into the the superstitious fanaticism behind this, I think you should know who it's coming from. So this, I, I found the original tweet from the uh, assistant professor who got fired from the University of Tampa. His name is Ken Story. That's at KL Story. Uh, at K-L-S-T-O-R-E-Y. I think the, Twitter's, the Twitter account's been deleted, though, anyhow. But um, he's a sociologist, uh, which means he's getting a degree which certifies him to make decisions about how other people should live their lives. And a degree that proves that he knows what's best for all of you plebes out there. But I found his tweet, and, and this is what his tweet, this is, this is uh, what it says. It says, I don't believe in instant karma, but this kind of feels like it for Texas. Hopefully this will help them realize that GOP doesn't care about them. So, I mean, what a completely idiotic, superstitious, irrational, and really fanatical thing to say. Not to mention hateful. I mean, they deserve it. I hope they learn their lesson. That serves them right. You know, it's it's you know this this is fanaticism in action. So, and again, I'm not going to get into the whole is Houston really red or really blue. I mean, if pe- people fan- come at you with fanaticism, the last thing you should do is try and defend yourself on their terms because then you just get pulled into their game and it's their battlefield um and i've said before you know personally i don't vote because i mean there's there's a few reasons for this but but number one i think this is the best one that anyone can relate to is because voting makes you complicit in murder so what do i mean by that well what i mean by that is every president and I mean, it probably is like a hundred percent of all presidents, but you know, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's one. Maybe Calvin Coolidge. Maybe there was no, um, you know, no uh, wars or skirmishes during you know one president's reign. I don't, I don't know if that's Calvin Coolidge. I just kind of pulled that out of you know thin air. But for the most part, they all are. So you know, I just did a quick little uh, Google on this, and and you could do the same. And I found this article from, uh, or a, a graph from the uh, Bureau of Investigative Journalism. It's total killed and total civilians reported killed by CIA drones under Presidents Bush and Obama. So under Bush, you see minimum people reported killed. And let's see, it's about 300. And then under Obama, the minimum people reported killed is about... 2,100. So, I, I, I know that's going to surprise most people because most people think that Obama was the peace candidate and Bush was the war candidate, and so Obama somehow brought peace to us. But actually, he killed um, a lot more people. He's responsible for the deaths of a lot more people. And there's also, um, so, you know, minimum people reported killed. That includes, you know, warfare um, enemy combatants. So there's also minimum civilians reported killed. And for Bush, that's like, uh, looks like about 200. And for Obama, it's about 
250. So, I mean, as far as like having blood on your hands, well, even one's a lot, right? Because, I mean, normal people like you and me, we manage to get through life without killing anyone ever, you know? So really even killing one person should be like, you know, well, that's, that's blood on your hands there, dude. And if you kill 200, um, you know, 500, 2,000, and these are all moderate estimates. This is all just uh, killed by CIA drones. This doesn't include all the other ways that people can be killed. And then also it includes all the people that are imprisoned and, and all the people who are robbed. Certainly that's like 100% of the population that's robbed under any president because of uh, coercive taxation. But before we get into those uh, nitty-gritty details, it's enough to say that that right there is a good enough reason not to vote for any of these people because you're basically endorsing murderers. So, um, and, and, and I think it's safe, it's safe to just make that an absolute uh, moral decision rather than getting into, well, I sh- you know, you should feel obligated to support the one who murdered less people. Like, that's somehow better. Um, so, anyhow, the point is you shouldn't have to justify or refute ridiculous statements like this Ken Story guy made by offering up your voting record. You shouldn't feel obligated to respond at all to statements like this because it's just a sign that this whole segment of society has become so diluted by propaganda and reactiveness and collectivism and hate and fanaticism that they really just can't see reality clearly any longer. They're regressing to this sort of primitive and superstitious level that we see in the Taliban or that we read about in the Spanish Inquisition or you know, Salem Witch Trials is, is, a, is a popular um, analogy for all of that. But don't worry about this Ken Story guy. He's, he's going to be fine. He'll get picked up by another sociology department somewhere. And you know they're going to they're going to kiss his boo-boos and they're say, no, we know what you meant. And, you know, it's, 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 I'm so sorry that you got caught up in the crossfire, but, you know, you're on the right, you're on the right track. Um, I know how these, you know, sociology departments work. I, I used to be affiliated one way back in a different life. Um, you know, and if he doesn't get picked up in another sociology department, um, he'll, he'll probably get a good job with the government. Um, and then there's this, <laughs> then there's this wave of headlines in other, um, I'm just going to say statist kind of outlets trying to place blame for the flooding on Houston's lack of zoning laws and lack of regulation and lack of city planning. So, um, There's a Guardian headline that says, The real villains in Harvey Flood, urban sprawl, and the politicians who allowed it. In other words, they're saying these wicked politicians in Houston weren't coercive and authoritarian enough. They allowed people to make free and independent decisions. And thus were they punished by the Great Flood. 
Houston is drowning in its freedom from regulation, says Newsweek. <laughs> you watch out for that, that wicked freedom. Freedom is a, is a, is a, a road of, of heartache and devastation. And then outlets like the Washington Post have pointed a finger at Houston's Wild West growth spurred by a lack of comprehensive urban planning as a reason for the severity of the recent floods. So, I mean, the reality, of course, is that the reason Houston flooded is because we got a record 55 inches of rain. So, I mean, this is, I mean, Houston is, has, has floodplains, and when you buy a home in Houston, you have to, uh, you know, acknowledge the floodplain, and you have recommendations to buy insurance in certain areas, and then if you can't afford insurance, then you, you know, there, there certainly is a whole segment of, of, of population here who, who knows they live in a flood area. And they don't get insurance because they know that they will qualify for FEMA aid. So it's not really, since, since there's a government, um, you know, handout behind it all, uh, they don't really have any motivation to take responsibility. It doesn't financially make sense to take responsibility when you know um, Big Brother has a, a safety net there for you. But my point in all this is that um, this Hurricane Harvey went way beyond um, affecting people in low-lying, you know, traditionally low-lying areas. Um, it hit people in high-lying areas. It people, hit people that had never, ever um, had to worry about flooding ever before. So it was just a devastating natural disaster. And I guess this is one of the things that um, you know, people respond to a natural disaster, often trying to f invoke supernatural um, explanations for why it happened. Again, uh, falling back into superstition. But the funny thing is, it isn't the people in Houston who got hit by that that are falling back on this superstition. It's people outside of Houston in. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't want to say it's certain parts of the country or say that it's like bigger cities or, or whatever. It's coming from somewhere, and I think everyone can, like, figure that out for themselves. My point is it's not the people in Houston that are falling back on superstition. It's the people outside of Houston that are jumping on the opportunity for superstition in order to point the finger. So... We got a lot of finger wagglers out there. So, another fact check here for Houston is one of the indications is that the lack of city planning and all of the uh, the greedy, greedy capitalists in Houston um, paved over so much of the land. So there's just too much, you know, it's, there's too much concrete on the earth, and that's why we flooded, which is just ridiculous. So, 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 so first of all, here's some facts about that. Only 39% of Houston's land is taken up by impervious surface coverings, according to U.S. Forest Service data. That compares 41% to New Orleans, 
54% in Los Angeles and 61% in New York City. New York City. All cities that have traditional zoning regulations. So even though these cities had lots and lots of zoning laws, um, they actually have ended up with more impervious land than Houston does. And that's the thing that a lot of these finger wagglers are pointing to, the impervious land. I mean, the reality is that a lot of Houston has been, the landscape in Houston has been modified to account for this. This is why we have bayous, bayous and uh, water reserves and things like that to try and uh, uh, mitigate these sorts of natural disasters because we all know it happens here from time to time. People who continue to live here understand that risk. They should understand that risk. So there was one guy I saw on the news. You know, the the local media loves these things because they love to find sob stories and and stories that tug on your heartstrings um and 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 go out there show up with their microphones and 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 look like the good guys and 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 everything i saw one guy getting interviewed on this and and he was a a katrina survivor because that happened when katrina hit uh new orleans and that was a real devastating thing at the time a lot of the people who were uh made homeless uh from uh Katrina ended up moving to Houston and resettling here. So, I mean, and and again, people from all walks of life. I mean, I had a bunch of friends uh, move here um, after that happened. And the thing is, is um, that's understandable and that's normal. So sometimes people need to move as a result of these sorts of devastating events. And this is one reason why, um, you know, I always lament that I don't go to New Orleans anymore. Before Katrina happened, you know, it's about, you know, five and a half hours from Houston. Uh, we used to go visit there because I had a lot of friends there. I had a, uh, my good friend uh, Harry from uh, the goth band days of Falling Janice lived there. And he lived just two blocks uh, from St. Charles Street. And I remember going there. I guess this had to be like uh, maybe... 2000 2001 and uh you know stayed stayed at his apartment and enjoyed the mardi gras you know many many uh wonderful reasons used to call me back to new orleans but after katrina happened and i know i've heard the city's like uh you know revived and 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 bounced back and and the french quarter's all going on and everything but never went there again because i don't have any friends there anymore my friends all moved to houston (laughs) or other areas in the South, Memphis, and, and places like that. Anyhow, I saw this guy on the news, and he would, he'd moved here from Katrina, lost everything, moved here with his family, uh, reestablished himself in Houston, you know, got a new house and everything, and, this, and, then, um, and then this happened to him, and he lost everything all again. And you could tell the guy, I mean, and he was at one of the shelters, I think at the George R. Brown Convention Center. This is after the shelters are starting to populate after Harvey. And the newscaster, you could tell the guy really just didn't want to talk about it. But the newscaster, he asked him, he went there, he said, did you have insurance? And I said, no, I did not. And you could tell he just, he, he wanted to cry um, and, and get out of this interview so badly. 
um, because, I mean, that just really has to add salt to the wound there that you went through this once in the past, lost everything, established everything again, got a new home, but you didn't get flood insurance. Wouldn't you get flood insurance if that had happened to you once? So, I mean, there's natural disasters, but there's also um, the things that people can do to insulate themselves. And also what this demonstrates is that everyone who lives here and stays here knows the risk of hurricanes and floods. You have to, you, you cannot live in Houston and not be aware of that risk. And so you have to understand that sometimes people are taking their lives into their own hands if they make decisions to purchase homes that are in low-lying territories or to not uh, take out flood insurance on them. So getting back to the zoning laws thing, and some people have heard me talk about zoning laws before, and they're like, oh, here comes, here comes Fritz harping about zoning laws. So you can just, the thing is, this is not a conspiracy theory. Um, it's, it's, there's a large body of evidence and research demonstrating that there is a direct correlation between the number of zoning laws in a town and the inflation of the housing markets in those towns, in those areas. So, um, and, and you know what? You can Google this, and you're going to find there's a, there's a good article in The Atlantic on it, and, and there's like a lot of other, lot, lot of other things. So, so that's the point I want to make. And Thomas Sowell, uh, one of my favorite economists, talks about this in his book, Economic Facts and Fallacies, um, about zoning laws. And he demonstrates with lots of statistics that there's this direct correlation between the amount of zoning laws and inflated housing markets. So, one thing there is that indicates that I, you know, I, and I just can't help but wonder if, like, part of the dissing on Houston's zoning laws, and a lot of these articles are coming from places like uh, Chicago and, and and coastal California, um, that there's a, a little bit of resentment about that um, because. Um, the reality is that the lack of the zoning and regulations have in the past, and I feel will in the future, actually allow us to rebuild faster and smarter after the hurricane. So you can contrast this again with New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, where their super rigid zoning codes actually prevented damaged developments in flooded parts of the city to be rebuilt elsewhere. Because this is what zoning laws do. And I understand that maybe not a lot of people really understand what happens. But these create regulations about where you can build, what kind of stuff you can build in a um, arbitrary kind of way um, if you're sitting on the outside of it. The reality of, of it is what happens as far as like residential areas is this serves to prevent certain kinds of people from moving in and so yeah that's the irony is that they're also they're actually used in a discriminatory manner to prevent certain types of people income levels and other things 
from moving in to certain areas. It's basically these, these, these home uh, organizations get together to leverage. Since they can leverage these zoning laws through the government, they use that to protect themselves. It's really the same sort of thing that you see with crony capitalism. In other words, um, businesses and certain um, uh, conglomerates of businesses work with government and conspire to leverage the force of government to eliminate their competition, um, to establish their business, uh, to maintain um, their, their, their continuance. And, and zoning laws is how, um, how real estate and, and associations of homeowners do the same thing to leverage government in order to preserve themselves, to increase their value, uh, increase, i.e. inflate their home values at the expense of barring out newcomers. So a little bit of that happens anyhow. It's like certain people want to move to the part of the city where you know they have peers and friends and people are on the same level that's fine that's understandable that's free association that's normal that's natural what's unnatural is that people leverage the power of force which is owned by the government exists because of the government and they leverage that to prevent and only because it's convenient uh, i have friends in chicago they're really great people in chicago i love chicago it's my kind of town Chicago is, is, you know, it's, it's well known uh, that Chicago is one of the um, more, uh, one of the most segregated um, towns in, in America. And I used to live up there in that area. Um, I was a part of it, and that's like, you know, just something that you realize it's really clear up there when you live up there. That's um, something that's going on. But they have the, this, this very large amount of zoning laws, and here they are pointing at Houston as not having zoning laws and that that is like somehow associated with um with uh racism or something um associated with the city of houston because this is another thing so another thing i saw in the media which a lot of people have like i'm, I'm sure seen at this point is charlie hebdo the french magazine put out this this cover um of it raining on houston and it's on a bunch of nazi flags and sea heiling people are getting drowned in this flood and no one's really sure what this means. Were they being sarcastic or are they being cynical? You know, no one really knows. They're radical, but I mean, it's, it's I don't know, it's probably the last thing a lot of people in Houston um, needed to see at the time. So um, I'm going off onto a lot of tangents here, talking about economics and real estate and, and, and zoning laws and whatnot. So. So let's let's bring this back for a minute. Why I'm talking about this on Damonosophy is the argument that Houston deserved it starting to ring a bell. Maybe some story I don't know about God punishing the wicked by causing it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. So I've tried to make this point before on the show that extreme statist fanaticism is functionally identical to extreme religious fanaticism. You heard the term the cult of the state. That monarchism is a common pattern growing out of monotheism and eventually mutating 
into contemporary socialism, collectivism, and totalitarianism. Now, if you read um, my book, The Airbath Transmissions, I tried to illustrate these principles using the mythological figures of the, the daemons and the angels and uh, them wrestling with the question of how do we deal with uh, the black flame, which symbolizes the remanifestation of consciousness, isolated intelligence, freedom, and liberty in the human race. And how do we deal with that? What are we going to do with that? Are we going to let them be free and find their own way? Or should we, um, should we coerce control and totalitarianize them? So once the mind is entrapped by this kind of thinking, this monarchistic, monotheistic pattern, it becomes susceptible to all sorts of mysticism and superstition. So there's another really good book that I want to uh, recommend to y'all all that deals with these issues, and it's called The True Believers by Eric Hoffer. And so uh, this is from, uh, this is some stuff from the Wikipedia. True Believer, Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements. Uh, from 1951, Hoffer argues that fanatical and extremist cultural movements, whether religious or political, arose under predictable circumstances when large numbers of people come to believe that their individual lives are worthless and ruined, that the modern world is irreparably corrupt, and that hope lies only in joining a larger group that demands radical changes. And of course, uh, his most immediate inspirations here were Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, and he refers uh, to these two groups a lot, frequently throughout it. Uh, Hofer believed that self-esteem and a sense of satisfaction with one's life were of central importance to psychological well-being. He thus focused on what he viewed as the consequences of a lack of self-esteem. For example, Hofer noted that leaders of mass movements were often frustrated intellectuals, from Adolf Hitler in the 20th century Europe to Hong Shiquan's failure to advance in the Chinese bureaucracy of the 19th century. The core principle in Hoffer's book is the assertion that mass movements are interchangeable. In the Germanies of the 20s and the 30s, the communists and Nazis, does that sound familiar, were ostensibly enemies but routinely swapped members as they competed for the same kind of marginalized, angry people, and fanatical communists became Nazis and vice versa. So that's one of the most interesting things, and you can see this in your own experience, or I will say I have seen this in my own experience of knowing lots of people who've been through lots of things, and really, there's sort of a personality type that goes from different uh, paradigms of fanaticism to another uh, throughout their time. Uh, They work in one uh, fanatical paradigm until they... I don't know, have a problem with, with, the, with the people in it or, or something, and then they quit that in a huff, and then they find the next one. So 
I mean, a lot of people who've gone through this sort of searching end up coming to the left-hand path eventually. But I have to say in my experience that nine times out of ten, most people who remain in the left-hand path find that there's something deeper and more substantial, maybe even super substantial to it that magnetizes and crystallizes them to it and so they stop this sort of um you know uh sort of a fanatical um on again off again routing through various fanatical groups uh political and or religious in nature so i mean this is an important book a lot of people on the left-hand path read this book very popular within the um, within uh, setian circles, and the, per- the 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 reason it's recommended that people read this book is not so they can go out and start accusing other people of fanaticism, but that people use it as a mirror to examine themselves and examine their own motivations about things. And the other thing that should ring a bell about the idea of Nazis and communists fighting it out in the streets is that that is happening again in our time. I'm sure everyone hearing this has heard about uh, the shit that was going on in Charlottesville. And the dangerous thing about this, you see these conflicts happening. And it's very controversial because of what uh, Trump said about it. And because of how the media is reporting on it, and the media is really only reporting on one side of it, the media kind of has a a bias on which side they want to um, illustrate as being the good guys versus the bad guys. And this is what's dangerous, is that just like ordinary people, you know, people like, like us, you know, people who are, you know trying to get by in the world and 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 trying to support ourselves and our families and 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 trying to initiate ourselves in intelligent and ethical ways we see this stuff happening and 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 they show this stuff to us they bombard us with imagery of this stuff on tv and on social media and what they really want to do is is to get us to take a side there's no one that uh, gets this information to you that does not have a vested interest in um, what you think about it. And so people kind of have this automatic internal emotional uh, response that tells them they need to pick a side in this. You need to be on, on the right side. There's going to be a losing side of history and you don't want to be on that side. You want to be on the right side of this. And so... And so people will really quickly like pick a side and they'll assess this and and sometimes maybe they're assessing it based on what they uh, you know believe to be right and wrong you know they're assessing it in a, in a moral way and then um, sometimes and I think probably a lot of the times they're assessing their their reaction to this is is based on uh, collectivism and conformity they want to be with the right group they want their friends to like not. Uh, judge them harshly for it and so of course there is a third way and y'all know I always like to point out the third force and the third way in all things and Gurdjieff said we are third force blind and this is often the doom of man that he is third force blind and 
And uh, LeVay made a, a thing about this, too, with the third point on the, the pentagram that is not left nor right. And so you could call this libertarianism. Uh, some people respond to that because they think that that's just another political thing, or they think it's a hybrid of right and left. And what they fail to understand is that the essence of uh, libertarianism is actually a uh, negation of the political mindset. It's a complete uh, repudiation of the elite hegemony which wishes to lead us onto one side or the other um, because that makes us easier to control. It makes us more reactive. Uh, it keeps us in that ignorant, fanatical, um, superstitious, reactive kind of mode. You just have to think about the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and all this time period when the church controlled all of Western society and all of our thoughts and what we understand the mentality of ordinary people back then. So um, all of this is to say that when we see these things coming up in the media, whether it's, you know, um, whether it's, you know, red shirts and brown shirts battling it out in Weimar, Germany, or whether it's alt-right and alt-left battling it out in um, in, in Charlottesville, or whether it's, it's um, you know, uh, big city elitism versus, versus Houston. Um, sorry, I couldn't think of any other way to frame that. Our immediate response should be nothing. There's no need to believe something to state your belief in something, either to yourself or to others, if there is not an immediate need to. And this is a very practical piece of advice as well. I mean, you can find this is probably in, this is probably in the 48 Laws of Power somewhere or somewhere in Baltazar Gracian. Um, and, and I can't recall, but the idea is this, is that if there is not a reason, a compelling reason that benefits you to commit yourself to a belief or a course of action, then don't. You know? So someone, someone you know, asks you, well, well, what do you believe? They say, well, I, I don't. I have no need to. Um, well, actually, you probably don't want to say that. You probably want to say something more, um, you know, um, diplomatic, uh, because ultimately, if someone wants to go get fanatical about something, there's nothing that you can say to stop them, but what you can do is try to not get any on you, and that's my advice. And another great resource along these lines is Wilhelm Reich, and especially his book, The Mass Psychology of fascism and he points to um, you know similar things like how energy amongst a mass population is sort of well manipulated and and used up and becomes uh, sort of uh, explosive and violent and this occurs in 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 connection with the flow of this cosmic 
energy source, which he later on would call the orgone, but mass psychology of fascism, he's focusing mainly on the, the uh, socio-political, psychological phenomenon, and he referred to it as the emotional plague that infects mankind. And so, um, you know, what we... And, and he actually started to treat it like a form of illness um, that could be addressed with certain types of therapy, orgone therapy. Um, and, but that, that is all to say that what he would call the emotional plague, well, symptom, symptoms of the emotional plague are uh, the symptoms of fanaticism, the symptoms of superstitious hatred and explosiveness towards um, others in society that are perceived to be enemies, um, either because of what they think, where they live, the color of their skin, what have you. And this plague all derives, is all the result of collectivism, coercion, statism. Uh, here's a great quote from Mass Psychology. He says, The cry for freedom is a sign of suppression. It will not cease to ring as long as man feels himself captive. As diverse as the cries for freedom may be, basically, they all express one and the same thing, the intolerability of the rigidity of the organism and of the machine-like institutions which create a sharp conflict with the natural feelings for life. Not until there is a social order in which all cries for freedom subside will man have overcome his biological and social crippling. Will he have attained genuine freedom. Not until man is willing to recognize his animal nature in the good sense of the word will he create genuine culture. So, in conclusion, there's a couple of conclusions here. One conclusion, I think, is that when people respond to a natural disaster in an emotional and political kind of way that this is not real this is just sort of a a uh, mechanical manifestation and you search back you find that there's sources behind it i mean there's individuals out here repeating this um sort of uh derision and judgmentalness but there's a source behind it that's politically motivated that ultimately is a source of mechanicalism. We shouldn't worry about being left or right. We should just, just recognize it as being a source of mechanicalism and try to steer clear of it and remain independent from it in your thoughts, deeds, and actions. And the other thing that I want to emphasize, that I want you to take home from this, is that extreme fanatical religiosity is indistinguishable from extreme fanatical statism. They are one and the same. They even draw upon the exact same mythological elements, like the idea of a 
deluge, a massive flood sent from God to punish the wicked. People accept this theory, they accept this model, and then they assume, therefore, all the people in Houston must be wickedness in whatever my model of, of wickedness means. Um, you know, they're rednecks or, or racists or whatever. And it's just ridiculous. So if you subscribe to these ideas, to these ideologies, you are blinding yourself from a huge part of reality. And if you pursue the freedom of the left-hand path and in so doing reject uh, the religiosity aspect of it, it behooves you to also carefully consider the statist fanaticism that seems to creep in and try to take religion's place. You want to stay in the middle, not in a flip-floppy kind of way, but in an independent and sovereign kind of way. The way Set, the Prince of Darkness, uh, in his image amongst the ancient Egyptians, stood apart from all other natures and gods by virtue of his non-natural alien appearance. Because stand alone, by, of, and for yourself is the greatest left-hand path virtue, and in so doing, you find a well and reservoir of compassion for your fellow man that is unknown to those who have allowed uh, the coercion and corruption of the emotional plague to infect them. And there's a great left-hand path lesson in this about how we deal with adversity, how we deal with inertia, um, this idea of cosmic inertia and how we deal with it. This is an idea that comes out of the book of Coming Forth by Night. As Set realizes the principle of isolated intelligence soon after coming into awareness realizes that it must deal with cosmic inertia that it must struggle against cosmic inertia in order to exist, in order to become. P.D. Ospensky once said that if life didn't throw us crisis situations, then it would be necessary for us to manufacture them artificially. Because this is how we grow in our being, our soul, and in our morality because it challenges us to make decisions and to try and make the right decision, the best decision, so you can come out of this crisis situation on top. We need these situations. We need this cosmic inertia in the same sense that when you're a child and you fall and you skin your knee on the sidewalk, then you really get a sense of what it's like to be alive and to exist in that moment. 
and then you recover from it and you learn and you gain something from the experience. So look at these uh, moments of unexpected chaos and inertia as opportunities. Thank those who attack you for they give you an opportunity to know yourself and to rise above and to see who you really are. They give you an opportunity to learn how to shine like fire in the jaws of chaos. And I'm going to wrap all this up with a song. So this is what happens. If I don't have a uh, musical guest on, then um, you get to hear something from me. And so this is a song from uh, my uh, demonic body music project, Asmodeus X. And this is a song called Typhoon, which we wrote right after Hurricane Allison, which was um, right after Katrina happened. Everyone in Houston watched that go down on TV, watched this incredible human suffering and tragedy happening there and thought, oh my God. And then, it was like within a, not more than 30 days, I believe, um, then we hear come another hurricane headed for Houston. And it was hurricane, this was Hurricane Allison. And after seeing the horrible devastation, the city fathers of Houston uh, ordered an evacuation. So this is what became known as the Great Texodus. And it was almost more disastrous than uh, being flooded by a hurricane because people got out on the roads. Uh, I mean, six million people on the roads at once was created total chaos uh, and gas ran out um, seriously we drove like uh, to uh, Temple Texas to stay with friends there and uh, caravaned up with some other friends who were driving and we had our dogs with us and you know what should have been like a you know four and a half hour drive ended up being nine ten hours of touch and go traffic on the interstate which was just absolutely horrible um, so anyhow, that's why they didn't cause, uh, why they didn't call evacuation, uh, this most recent time, uh, lesson learned from that. It's better to hunker down and deal with it here. So anyhow, here's the song Typhoon from Asmodeus X. I hope you dig it.
Well, thank you for listening to another installment of Devanosophy 2.0, the only podcast exploring the congruence of liberty and the left-hand path. For more information, visit our website at www.daemonosophy.com. Follow our tweets at airbeth underscore trans. Or join the discussion on Facebook at the Daemonosophy Group. And until next time, keep the dark fire burning. (laughs) 